Welcome to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, a podcast about getting out from behind the keyboard and just talking. Each week, we invite a guest or two to sit down and talk about their life and their work. I'm Christopher Brown, your host, and this is the Cross-Border Interview Podcast featuring... Mumilap Kakak, Member of Parliament for Nunavut. Uh, today's guest is the current member of parliament for Nunavut, uh, Mumalek Kakak. Uh, Mumalek, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the time and opportunity. Um, my first question to all my guests, politician-wise, is where did your sense of duty come from? I think ultimately growing up, uh, I was very much raised in a household where if you weren't doing something, then maybe you should be busy doing uh, something that is productive. Um, but more importantly, if you do have the means uh, and the ability to, you know, you're not worried about your basics, that you help people that need help. And that's very much, uh, and my mom is uh, very uh, just um, giving individual. I mean, both my parents are, so is my family. I think uh, they didn't realized they were raising politicians but my brother's also on the hamlet council back home too so we were just raised very much in an ideation of if we were fortunate uh, to not be worried about certain things that we should help individuals that might be worried about the basics that uh, we were privileged not to worry about um so i think a lot of my uh, foundation comes from my family and my house my direct household growing up and now let's talk about your family a little bit. Were they political uh, growing up or how did you get the political bug? You and your brother get the political bug because when you talk to politi uh, politicians, you ask, where did it come from? They mostly say, well, my parents weren't. So I went in the opposite direction that they were. So I got involved in politics. So what's your story when it comes to politics as a young girl growing up in Nunavut? I think my thing has always been that politics affects every aspect of our lives as regardless of whether or not we see those uh, discussions or decisions being made that those individuals making these decisions for tens of thousands, if not millions of people, um, definitely has its own process and procedure in itself. So my whole life, you know, I have always been asked are you interested in politics? Are you going to go that route? And I'd always laugh in people's faces because my whole thing is my whole identity and my whole being has been politicized uh, and has been forced into such a political oppressive state. And I can get a bit into what that means um, that I in turn as an you know, don't have the right to self-determination, often don't have uh, quality of life compared to other non-Inuit, non-Indigenous peoples, that over the past four or five decades, and a bit longer in some areas, that the federal government has over time been able to create systems that make sure Inuit have a really, really hard time being able to access the full right to self-determination, be able to you know, make it to a certain age even. What we see in Nunavut and what we see for majority Inuit communities is this really, uh, these really gross disproportionate numbers in violence, abuse, suicide, murder, uh, all of these horrific uh, 
things that result in a lack of quality of life uh, in turmoil. And this is a direct result of a lack of funding from the federal government. So my whole life I know has been un influenced by these people like I can't see and have never interacted with me or my communities and I've always understood this kind of external parental weird type figure that really impacted our lives that didn't really understand or want to understand or even acknowledge to an extent that we were there so I think my whole life has been you know how can I help people that are worried about certain things that I'm not worried about. But I saw right away that there was no way I could get away from politics if I was going to make any change, even though that was a beast I never wanted specifically to get into. Uh, being a member of parliament was the best opportunity that came my way to help individuals. So I grab it. And I think that was similar with my brother. He had an opportunity come up. He's the full-time hunter trapper and he uh, sits on the uh, men's group and all of these other kinds of great community initiatives and Hamlet Council came around and he, oh my goodness, it warms my heart. He got the most votes um, wow. out of like all the council members out of, every, and like he's the youngest. And yeah, so we just, uh, I, I think it was more, we realized that politics was how we could help and how we could make a difference. And we just realized that really early uh, and how we could kind of grab those ropes, I guess. Now, um, like I said, I've done research. I've listened to uh, episode, uh, interviews with you that you've given pre-election, post-election, uh, up to today almost. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating is you say in past interviews that the federal government has failed the Inuit, First Nations, and Indigenous communities. Uh, this is one of the reasons why you like you said just recently, just got into politics is because they had failed so much and you wanted to give that voice to the people and raise these concerns in Ottawa. How were they failing, uh, the Inuit people, the native, uh, the First Nations communities, the Indigenous communities across Canada? We only have an hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's why um, I wanted to jump into that part quick, because yeah. I know it is a topic that you were so passionate about. Right. And that's what I like about the show. I, my show is just mm -hmm. I want the people to talk about what they're passionate about. And by the sounds of it, by the interviews you've talked to, uh, you've given, you are so passionate about this issue. And I want to make sure that we get it on this uh, topic as quickly as possible. Right. So I think every Canadian should be extremely passionate about these particular challenges. I have a hard time calling them issues when we say Indigenous issues, or it's not an issue because we're Indigenous, but we have labeled it as an idea that being Indigenous comes along. We've started to attach these stereotypes and assumptions that you are struggling with X, Y, and Z. Your family has gone through X, Y, and Z. Although a lot of us share the similar histories, uh, it, it's a lot more complex and a lot more staggered in timelines. And that's probably the starting point in the frustration uh, for a lot of Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples, because what we are starting and what we have been seeing is clear division simply because of a lack of knowledge. Um, some 
examples I can give. For example, we saw what happened out in Nova Scotia on Mi'kmaq territory. What we saw was a disagreement between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples escalate due to lawmakers and policy procedure makers not being involved in uh, facilitating those discussions for decades for a very very long time it wasn't something that was like a few year fight um, so this is something that hasn't been settled for decades and I had people asking me because I'm indigenous what my thoughts on it were and first off it's time out hold on <laughs> why are you asking first off you're asking me because I'm probably your one brown friend right yeah and that's that's typically the answer is well I so that answer is yes um second you are about to tell you're about to ask me a opinion about a situation I know little to next to nothing of just because I'm indigenous does not mean I understand histories of all the different indigenous groups throughout Canada. So I think one of the our starting point is that it's it's extremely frustrating that there's this paint uh, there's this kind of umbrella ideation that Indigenous peoples fall under a certain category. And like I hop onto shows all the time where it's like, well, the Mohawk from this territory. And I'm like, I don't know who you, like you're talking like as if they're my cousins down the road. Like, I don't know who we share. Indigenous peoples share similar holistic ideations, similar approaches to being one with the environment and those kinds of things. But it doesn't mean that we are all connected and kind of have this weird hotline between one another. I think people think that we, because we're Indigenous, we automatically know who's doing what everywhere. Well, I, I can kind of relate, not completely, but uh, as a gay man, when I came out, everyone's like, well, do you know Jim from this town four don't streets over? And I was Jim like, no, sorry, I don't, I don't, I didn't get the newsletter this week. I, I apologize that I'm not completely aware of everyone who's but out there. don't all the gays in the same area, like know each other? Cause all the Inuit, all the brown people do. Of <laughs> course, of course. I lived in Northern Alberta for five years and everyone <laughs> assumed that I knew all the gay people so I assumed uh, that everyone was just a big giant club but I completely agree with that statement where just because you're indigenous or Inuit or Métis or First Nations doesn't mean that you know all First Nations, Métis, Inuit or indigenous people. It, it is a uh, uh, odd thing that people think. So I think that's the starting point and that can also kind of muddle assumptions, stereotypes, and ideations, because for some Indigenous groups, specifically First Nations groups, the impacts of these federal laws and the federal institution putting these, quite frankly, BS things onto Indigenous peoples had been happening for uh, decades before it had reached the north so there are some areas where it might have been we might have been seeing residential school for 20 or 30 years before we we're even seeing uh, government officials reaching Nunavut area so those things too in themselves are generations of differences sometimes of you know children being impacted um, <clears throat> in certain communities in the north uh, some children weren't impacted for a few years 
longer. So you'll definitely see it throughout Nunavut where you can see how much language has deteriorated, how much culture has deteriorated. And I relate that to how quickly were they impacted by the federal institution, by the RCMP, by... so. There's all of these histories and institutions that intertwine with that. And typically, the longer that they have been interacting with a group of people, the more complex, the more messy, the more stereotypical, the more turmoil, the more violence you see. Um, and that is typically you can turn to the lack of quality of life, the lack of funding from the federal government. So I can talk more to the north and more to Nunavut specifically. Again, there's so many different histories in the south, so many different histories for many indif different indigenous groups here in Canada alone. And even in the north for Inuit, we have <clears throat> four different land claim settlements, Nunavut being the biggest one. And even in that already, there is so much that people and Canadians aren't aware of or or don't even understand I guess to me that's the basics um, that might not be the basics to everyone um, so in the the federal government not only have they been failing but they've been doing such a good job at covering it up now what we are seeing are the consequences of this lack of oh and I can go on and on um, but the federal government ultimately not having to deal with those amount of the the real on the ground death uh, abuse the violence the women and children fleeing from homes the uh, Inuit men high rates of suicide all of these kinds of things the federal government doesn't actually have to deal with the consequences on the ground but what we have seen are decades of un extremely underfunded federal initiatives in housing, water, and affordable living. So what you have seen over time, and again, why history is so important, is you've seen subsidies come into place down south for airlines. You've seen food programs that, that work and have evolved and have been able to uh, create and link with the transportation, with highways, with all this other kind of extra development, not even extra, just all this development in general and how much the federal government has left Nunavut in particular and the North behind. Uh, and, and not just in those simple food, shelter, waterways for the local individuals there, but how the situation has been created so it's really hard for people to uh, be able to reach economic means of their own without relying on a government agency working for the government of Nunavut or working for the federal government or working for an Inuit organization. It's really hard to be independent and have your own business and be have that right to self-determination within the territory. So I that's why I say uh, how much time like how long can we sit here and talk about it because I it's really hard to give you a one answer. This is why it is the way it is, because there are so many things that have led up to a very complex. But at the same time, it's very simple. It is the federal institution has failed us so severely. We are in this situation. That is the simple aspect of it. The complex is how we got there through that institution. 
So I, I know there's no quick fix here. There's no quick fix that would uh, solve all the issues tomorrow. But what's a starting point? What's a starting point to bring awareness to this, uh, it, these issues that are, uh, so, um, uh, that are hurting the people of Nunavut, the Inuit people, the First Nations people? Uh, what, is the, what, what is the first step? Because that, that is always the hardest step to take, right? It's always the hardest step to say, okay, we, we acknowledge the fact that there's something going on but we need to fix it. And what is that first step in your eyes? What would be a good first step for this government or for a potential NDP government in the future to take to rectify these issues that are facing the Inuit people of uh, Nunavut? I think the first step is electing NDP. (laughs) (laughs) The second, (laughs) no, I, and that's the extremely frustrating part about this is that when we watched People like Trudeau and previous leaders do things like take a knee. And you know, Jugmeet has said he's ultimately the person that can take a stand. Ultimately, the federal government has the power to make it national curriculum in our education system. This is Canadian history. Make sure that there are items from the truth. And they have they have a layout for everything they have a how-to guide for everything this isn't something that there is no written solution for the frustrating part about the fed the federal government and the liberal government is that trudeau can say minister of education and all the liberals can say yes we want to see canadian history in canadian curriculum and actually have that you know i I don't like this idea of indigenous history because it's not it's canadian it wasn't just indigenous people involved in all of these horrific things and that's and that's the power of words and that's the power of how they've been able to disconnect it indigenous issues it is not quite frankly it's a real white issue these are real heavily white issues that we're talking about these are underfunded institution issues these are not indigenous like i i can't there it's not an issue because we are indigenous it's an issue because we continue to see a lack of funding a lack of care and a lack of support from the federal government so in and that's but that is the power of awareness and education who does it benefit to to not have people aware and not have people pissed off the federal government it will cost them a lot of money to provide adequate and safe housing affordable food and drinkable water for all indigenous peoples it will cost them a lot i think that's the bottom line of we're not worth their dollar amount our lives aren't worth their dollar amount so i think it's it's the awareness and there is power in people if everybody started writing to their mps and everybody started saying we want to see indigenous items we want to see canadian history actually reflect in canadian education those kinds of things can happen these leaders that say oh well it's provincial or it's territorial or it's federal you know i love when people kind of like to point the finger all the time because no actually you have the power and authority in all different levels to make this a reality so at the federal level i think number one is putting I, I'm not sure about number one, but high up there is definitely putting it in the education system and starting from a very early age. Uh, there are definitely children-friendly stories that I've read myself that I 
I'd let my nephew or niece read. Uh, and it's not something that children are af- afraid of as long as you can teach it in a way that makes sense. And t- children are often the most empathetic and sympathetic and understanding individuals. And they can look at that and say, oh, that's wrong. We're not going to do that again. It's not, you know, I, I uh, these misconceptions about we can't teach them too young. Well, our five-year-old kids weren't asking to go to residential school either. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened to them. We are not asking you to put your children what our children went through. We are just asking you to make your children educated on what happened in ways that are safe for them and to teach them as they grow. And that is something that is totally possible. So putting it in the education system, I think one other thing that we really need to see from the national level, from the federal level, is the UN declaration being implemented in its full capacity. What I can tell you we are going to start seeing is it's going through readings and the liberals are 100% going to mess with the wording and basically going to put in tiny little clauses so that the Indian Act and the any land claim agreement can't be um, can't be altered in its already natural form. So I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that's what they're doing. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's also why the Canadian government refused to sign on to it for the last what year are we in year five officially, but year 10, I think eight or 10 um, conservatives have rejected it over and over. Uh, The liberals keep saying we support it, but we support it from afar. I believe it's because it has the power to demolish the documents like the Indian act and land claims agreement and have indigenous people really reach their full potential right to self-determination. And again, that costs the federal government a lot of money. Uh, On that note, I've got to ask, what would the NDP government, what would an NDP government do to rectify the situation? Would they, would uh, a prime minister, Jagmeet Singh, pass the UN Declaration of uh, Indigenous Rights? I think that there are so, so many other things. Yes, (laughs) I think that, hold on, let me, before I launch into, I will start with yes, but there are also so many other things that would tie into that, that I don't, I think people kind of have a hard time wrapping their head around and okay, what does this actually look like for NDP? So an NDP government would look like making sure people pay their fair share. And I know sometimes that that's a hard thing to kind of grasp on. To me, it didn't really um, ring any, um, what's it called? Like it's hard to, if you're not relating, it's hard to kind of grasp onto an idea sometimes. Yeah. But now that I, I see it and I'm in the thicket of it, it's it's a lot easier to explain. And what we have been seeing in, in COVID is that big corporations like Amazon can continue to not only run, but thrive while these small independent business owners are forced to shut down. And it should be almost the opposite. Amazon should be able to stay open only because they are helping these kinds of independent uh, 
business owners, organizations having these kind of funding initiatives because they are so wealthy and connected. I think that it's so, and we all do at NDP, think it's so ridiculous that these huge money grabs can happen right here on Canadian grounds. And we don't, and we can be seeing a fair share coming back into not just the economy, but our healthcare system, into dental, into education, into all of these different kinds of things. But it's hard sometimes to grasp because it, it can be such a huge game changer. Could you imagine, imagine if we taxed Amazon in a way that made sense, in a way where they are paying their fair share for the money they are making here. Okay, not only that, but imagine if you are on a treaty agreement or a land claim agreement, making sure that this huge corporation now is fulfilling whatever obligation it has. And there are lots throughout the country. And it's not just uh, indigenous treaty rights, but there are so many other ways to make sure that money stays local, where it should be staying local. Uh, I like to talk about things like a Star Wars slash Avatar kind of world I like to imagine. And that's kind of how NDP works. You know, I I think of like Star Wars, um, the council has all these little groups that can come together and they all kind of have their own corner of the galaxy, if you will. And they can work together when need be. And that's kind of how, you know, in times where NDP is unsure of things, we have really, really educated, experienced, knowledgeable individuals where, okay, if we're, we're unsure of a certain, say, a land claim agreement, well, I'm here. That's what I'm here for. We have Leah Gazan. We have Matthew Green. We have Jenny Kwan. And how, like, we have such an immense amount of experience, wealth of knowledge. And it's giving us a shot to show you that we can roll it out in a way that makes sense. Because I can also say, being behind the scenes, NDP, we are definitely the probably most organized party, just in terms of making sure we are covering our tying loose ends, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's. You should see the liberals and conservatives running around like headless chickens sometimes, the block. Like, we're looking around half the time like, do they even know what they're doing here (laughs) so we are also just like one of the most I've been trying to think of a phrase because I don't like this one but we are the party that's in it for people and the only reason I don't like that phrase is the the party peep what's the other one the p the people oh people's party the Maxine Bernier yeah that that way over there um that's the only reason I don't like it but we are the actual party that you know I don't come from an immense amount of wealth or huge political background. And I have other colleagues like that. And I have colleagues that do come from wealth and politic, uh, a political background. We have such a mixed and diverse bag and we know how to, and understand how to interact and lean on one, one another. You know, I was doing an interview yesterday and I said, I have never ever been worried about voicing my true honest opinion to Jagmeet. Ever. And I I could never say I could do that to Trudeau or O'Toole ever. And I would never run for any other party in general, but I would never run for a leader that I didn't believe in. And I could I couldn't I could not run 
for NDP if I did not believe in Jagmeet Singh. And Jagmeet is one of the most genuine, respectful individuals. And I try not to preach about him too much just because it's, you know, people think, oh, you're supposed to say that because it's your leader. Well, first off, I wouldn't run if I didn't believe in him, but I wouldn't (laughs) also spend my time doing that if I didn't see value in it. And I just, I I have such respect for leadership in my party. And, and even in that, it's, it's very much a colleague approach. It's no, I'm, you know, I'm MP just like you. I'm, we do have the title for work's sake, but a lot of the time it's not that kind of approach at all. And I don't, I can't tell you I ever feel it unless, you know, we're standing in front of a bunch of media and Jagmeet's standing in the middle. Then clearly he's my party leader. But other than that, uh, I have never felt I needed to back down or shy away or not be realistic about what I'm saying. And that's the beauty of how we get to work and learn from one another. So, you know, in in that NDP making sure people get their fair share, what we are saying is that look at the examples of organizations, businesses, corporations making lots of money and you wonder what the big wigs at the top do with it. What we're saying is we want those people to pay their fair share and we can start seeing the money come back into uh, to healthcare, to medicine, to education, to uh, community programming, to all all sorts of things. And it's it's hard to break it down into a very kind of five or ten minutes. Um, but but to, be, making- to, play, to play devil's advocate on you here, though, and this is just I'm just uh, I've had conservatives on the show, I've had uh, NDP on the show, I've had liberals on the show. Uh, on the right of the political spectrum, they say if you raise taxes on the businesses, they won't be able to hire many uh, workers. Therefore, the workforce in Canada would have to shrink and therefore unemployment would go up. What is your uh, counter argument on that? Because that is the one thing that the right will, the conservatives will say, you can't raise taxes on the wealthy. You can't raise taxes on the big organizations because they're, they're the ones who are They're employing talking the people about of Canada. the wrong wealthy people. That's their issue. Like they they think what we mean are individuals whose families need to cover rent. And so they're just painting a picture where it makes it seem like we will be taxing workers. We're not taxing. We are. How do I say this? And and this is the nice part about, you know, politics and the beauty of words and all that. The, the wording that they get to present makes it seem like we want to tax workers. We don't want to tax the workers. We want to tax who they are working for. So we are not going to be taking things off the backs of individuals at all. We are looking at taking things off of corporations and businesses that can handle it and should be paying their fair share anyways. We are not talking about, you know, you're you're going to have to be paying a little bit more because we have an NDP government. That's not what we're saying. We're saying vote us in so we can tax the people making these big bucks at the top because we're not talking about workers, not the workers, not the employees. We're talking about who they are working for. 
and, and then I'm glad you clarified that because like I said, yay, the, the words that people use today can be misconstrued it. So one way or the other. So I want to make sure that people understand that. I just the, say the tools, uh, I mean, his name has it all. So <laughs> I think we're, we're okay with that. Those <laughs> kinds of statements and I'm fine with clarifying things. As a former resident of his riding, I can tell you that he is a interesting gentleman, and I'll just leave it at that because I, I think we I, can leave our comments as <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, getting back to the uh, issues that are facing the uh, people of Nunavut, especially the Inuit people, the First Nations, Indigenous, and even Canadians all all around, um, Canadians of uh, Nunavut. With COVID-19, this has taken every major issue, it seems like, off the table. And COVID-19 has been the topic on everyone's discussion since uh, March 13th of last year, of 2020. How has the people of Nunavut uh, been during this pandemic? I think it's been an interesting situation because we were able to keep COVID out for so long. And ultimately, like Dr. Mike, uh, the chief uh, health officer, oh my goodness. Yeah, chief health officer of the territory. I was doing a live video once and I just got off the phone with Senator Patterson Mm -hmm. and Mike's last name is Patterson. And I was like really confused (laughs) in my head, like, oh, I don't want to mess this up. Right. So I was like, Dr. Mike and I just he said he's fine with me calling him that so I just call him Dr. Mike Um, and as Dr. Mike had said you know ultimately it's not a matter of if the virus comes in it's a matter of when so for a long time in the territory we were able to see COVID stay out uh, and unfortunately we did see you know an outbreak happen we saw a few scares leading up to that um, but then we did see an outbreak. I think in the beginning, I kind of think of, uh, I think I was in grade eight or nine when H1N1 uh, came uh, came and went. And it, I believe, came to the territory, but nothing to the extent like COVID and nothing, you know, nothing compared to what we're talking about now. But even then, I don't really remember feeling I don't and I was in high school so I don't know but I don't really remember feeling a sense of urgency or panic in the community or anything like that and I think that there was urgency and and frustration and and stress in the beginning and then I think it kind of went away for a bit because COVID seemed to have stayed out and then all of a sudden it hit really really hard and I think people in a sense, have seen the potential impacts of it and just kind of hadn't been living that reality, so to speak, because we hadn't actually seen any cases in the territory up until then. So for the first uh, little bit, I I think people were a lot more uh, aware and on their toes. And then after a while, that feeling kind of simmered and picked back up. And I think that people are still being very persistent and very aware I don't know if it's happening enough I think though that it's not happening in the same way down south like I find so I've I've been here in Ottawa um, since October Um, but last 
uh, last year I'd been in and out of the territory quite a bit. And uh, definitely down here, people are kind of okay with this. Like, not, I, I wouldn't say for the most part, but I would say in general, people have gotten used to the idea of wearing a mask, you wash your hands, this is kind of the protocol of what we're going to be seeing for the next while. I think that kind of feeling is starting to set uh, settle a bit more in Nunavut. Uh, but I think with the amount of overcrowding, the amount of current, like you had mentioned, you know, COVID has shone a light on things. I think in Nunavut, it's just amplified everything. And I, in Nunavut, I don't see how we can kind of put everything on hold to talk about recovery because there are some things in Nunavut that simply haven't really changed or the issues were already so prominent before COVID and COVID has only made them louder. It hasn't created anything new or different. There are still the same issues. They're just bigger and louder now because we have a pandemic to compare them to. And now is the federal government doing enough to support the people of Nunavut? Never has. During, I know. I, I, we, we did during talk about COVID? that. During COVID? Uh, and are they no. realizing the failures that they've had Not due no. to seeing all the insufficient uh, money that they could be putting into the people of Nunavut? Not at all. So back in March, uh, when all of these things were, and this is the other thing, we are starting to, uh, the discussion has been vaccine rollout a lot lately because they've kind of just skipped CERB and all the money stuff, they've been leaving people hanging a lot there. Um, and we've been talking a lot about vaccines and, and such lately. I think the federal government still, I don't know if they don't, it's really hard to tell if they don't know or they don't care. I, I can't tell if it's simply a lack of knowledge or simply they don't give to ding milks. a ding milk is a goose um <laughs> because there is only one voice that is mine in the house of commons i mean i don't have ontario mps could you imagine being able to lean on 70 plus other people to push for something i have nada so i think they felt that they have been able to not just with me but for the last 20 years be able to keep things real hush hush because it is one voice uh typically that voice is with whatever party is in power so they are being typically scripted you know i'm the first Nunavut MP to not be towing party line and that's big uh, in the territory but that's also what we should just be seeing across the board um, so I, I want to clarify on that because you just said something that I want to make sure I get a uh, clarification before we go on you say the first uh, Nunavut MP to not tow party line so are you saying that you have disagreed with Jagmeet Singh on some of the policies that the NDP oh. put forward and you have not felt you've talked about it a bit but uh, you, you just said towing party line no, not at so all. you can say i just i've disagreed with him on this and i went back to my the people of nunavut and said you know what i disagree with this that's their policy but it's not going to help the people of nunavut i see where i'm not being clear no that's yeah. not what i mean i okay. mean that i am not shouting pharmacare medicare 
uh, because that's not what my constituents are looking for. I'm not talking about those NDP, uh, when you think of NDP, or at least I, because I am an NDP MP, I can think of, you know, those kind of few staples of the policies. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not, not that I'm not for them. They, it's great. And I agree. It's just, it's not what my constituency needs. It's not what we're talking about. So you won't see me preaching pharmacare because I'm not worried about medication in my constituency. I'm worried about housing my constituency. So I just mean, you won't see me having that same staple messaging um, that the leader does, because that's not specifically what my writing's looking for. And that just goes back to, um, you know, I can talk to Jagmeet about basically anything. And we had very open, frank conversations. And yeah, it's, yeah, I just mean, I don't, I'm not, maybe I need to find a new phrase. I'm just not carrying the same messaging all the time that uh, some of my colleagues are. And I'm, I'm glad we clarified that because I don't want this to go out and people say, oh, she's going against everything the NDP stands <laughs> for. And that's not, not at I, all I, what I meant. <laughs> good, good to hear. Um, one of the big issues that you've mentioned a few times throughout this, one of the big uh, uh, issues facing the people of Nunavut is housing, adequate housing. Um, this is not just a Nunavut issue. This is a Canadian issue. This is a issue that is uh, people are facing coast to coast to coast right now. How can we fix this? How can we help not just the people of Nunavut get adequate housing, but proper housing and get Canadians proper housing? So I think just before I launch into that, an important note of the the housing differences yes is there is a housing national um issues but that in how inuit got there is not something that's shared so inuit were forced into settlement areas because the federal government a couple steps back americans (laughs) i love all this history americans came to the north in 1945 around the cold war and saw that canada was not taking care of its northerners turned around and went international media and we know from history that the canadian federal government does not do things good or bad for indigenous peoples typically unless they are under international pressure so americans uh came to the north they saw this was happening they said oh no we need to alert the world so canada turned around and said oh no we need to go and claim that land before america does so i've never actually looked into it but i've always wondered how alaska sneaked past us anyways (laughs) i i need to look into that but so the canadian government then started forcibly moving individuals into communities at the same time, slaughtering their dogs so that there was no transportation. At the same time, forcing them into government systems that had made it so Inuit relied on government payouts to pay for food. So think about it. Their dogs just got slaughtered. They have no mode of transportation, no means, ways of hunting. You are now forced into this little community that you probably didn't want to be in in the first place and you have to accept these government handouts to make it so that you rely on these individuals now 
uh, mix in residential school, TB treatment. There's all of these things that happen in a very short amount of time. In that, right from the get-go, you can look at community pictures and see structures, see buildings. You can tell it's an RCMP detachment, often a church, and often a health center. Around those buildings are igloos and tents. Right from the beginning, Inuit were not given adequate housing or infrastructure, and we have never seen it. In every community, there's one or two, or sorry, there's at least one, if not two or three rows of what we call matchbox houses, the most mold riddled oldest homes in each community. And we can pick them out right away. We know who lives in them. So right from the beginning, there's that very, very <laughs> distinct difference of forcing Inuit into a situation, not providing them the resources that they should have, and now continuing to not provide adequate anything. How we, we need to, I think, completely look differently, and we need to look elsewhere of uh, different infrastructure and building, what's the word? Um, more green initiatives, more Arctic friendly, Northern friendly, environmental friendly. There we go. That's the word. Um, <laughs> environmental, natural. Um, there's somebody from my hometown. His name is Alex Cook, who has been doing lots of research into uh, making a, oh, and I'm going to butcher this for you, Al. I'm sorry. Um, green initiatives that are northern specific and they have like all different kinds of solar and oh i'm gonna get this a little bit wrong so he's looking at creating the pilot in actually this year wow. um so we need to look at initiatives like that because whatever they're building right now uh, my housing tour, people basically said, throw them out. We don't want these two-unit bedrooms. We don't want what they're giving us already. And that's another thing a lot of Southerners don't realize is we don't have options. They come in and they make five two-bedroom units that year. And you might see that in five years. So now you have an increase of five new units in the community, yes, but they're only two bedrooms each. So it's not like we're getting new units and it's like, oh, you can pick from a five bedroom home or a three bedroom apartment. That's not how it works. You get a two bedroom, maybe another option. And that's if you're lucky to get on into a unit that year. It's uh, a terrible, the situation that the, the Canadian government and the people of Canada have overlooked for so long and the troubles that the people of Nunavut are going through. And like you said earlier on in the, the beginning of the interview, education is key, right? Education is key to shining lights on these issues that uh, Canadians are facing. And it's not just uh, the people of downtown Toronto. It's taxing the wealthy, putting in the... <laughs> And that's where, you know, people ask, where is this money, where's this money going to come from? We can see the billions, the millions that some of these corps and these businesses have been making record profits in COVID. How? 
How is that possible? They should be paying their fair share so that small businesses on the ground can keep their doors open. It's so, I hope we can look and talk about a new normal and recreate what normal means because this isn't normal. It's not normal for someone to, that's a single mom trying to go to school and get by with her kids to be struggling as much as you are in COVID. For a family of four to have to close down their independent business and maybe put the mortgage up for their home. Like the amount of real life things that people are going through now that are just completely devastating their family and their lives is so heartbreaking and it doesn't need to be like this there it doesn't need to be so that we see big wigs be fine and that's what we're gonna see look at all the rich people are gonna be completely fine after this what about all the people that need help and if we did this right then we can make sure that everybody gets their fair share and an equal amount or at least their basics that they need. And that's a frustrating part I find. I hope we can start talking about a new normal and really making these rich people pay, making big corps pay because people deserve a shot too on the ground. I agree um, with uh, I, we would totally start talking about that. But with only 10 minutes left, I have a few follow up questions that I want to ask. And I ask all my guests this. So um, getting back to that election in 2019, the election that you won, uh, you were running against a two high profile candidates. What was it like for you to see that check mark on your name on election night when they declared you the next MP for Nunavut? I don't know if I would label them as too high profile. Well, the former former health minister and as a former uh, the former health minister, uh, I forget her name right now for under Stephen Harper, uh, that was the conservative candidate. And I guess the liberal wasn't a high profile because the independent former liberal had stepped down and he wasn't running again. So one semi profiled name. Who was known for reading newspapers in the house. I find that's a very interesting. So I I like your question and I'm already jumping way, way past it. Um, That still, I think that left, that came and left. I was really looking for, people wanted to know how, how did you feel? What was going through your head? What was your emotions? What did you think? What did, and really I, I'm such a, okay, what's next person for me? It was, I'm an, okay, like, cool. I got elected, but come on, let's work. I got work to do. We got to go. Like, let's get people hired. What's the next steps? You tell me what's next. Let's go. I was just constantly ready to keep working, keep working, keep working. And I never really got out of that until my burnout from the housing tour. So I never really had a moment of, wow, I'm a member or like, because I never gave myself that time um so when it was 2 a.m and uh megan had called that evening uh i never heard from leona and don't expect i ever will um and you know that's the the talk about you know professionalism and um experience and high profile well i never heard from her since then so when uh, megan gave me a call that morning i said yeah thank thanks for calling great campaign it was great run and uh had a little chat and i said i'm tired i got an interview at in four hours i'm going to bed 
um, can you just put coffee on for the morning? And that was kind of it. And I got up and started doing, I think I had four or five interviews that day. And I never, still, I, I never really had my, oh, wow, I won moment. And I think that's gone. I think it's just, uh, if I were to pick a moment, I would pick um, Jody Wilson-Raybould invited me to her swearing-in ceremony. Oh, wow. And that federal institution is a really gross place to be in sometimes. But sitting in West Block in her swearing-in around her connections felt like sitting in, I don't know how she feel about this phrasing, but Indigenous royalty. Like, we were not meant to make it this far and we did and we're doing way more than anyone any institution ever wanted us to and it was just an unspoken strength just because you could see the braids and the regalia and the beads and all the reminders of we're still here even though we weren't meant to be and like let alone being sworn into independent Jody Wilson Rainbold. Like, so that I think if I were to pick a moment, that would be it. Jody swearing in ceremony. Not even yours. You're saying someone else um, is swearing. That's an interesting, <laughs> that's an interesting so, uh, answer. So my swearing in ceremony, Elections Canada messed up my paperwork and I wasn't actually sworn in the same time as all my colleagues. I signed a sticky note and I had my swearing in ceremony a few weeks later with Jugmeet, Peter and Jody. And that's how I ended up going to Jody's swearing in ceremony because it was on the fly. We were in caucus. I saw Jugmeet and I was like, hey, can you come run across the street with me? We're just going to go sign the thing. I get sworn in. We'll be right back before breaks over. So we ran over and I Jody happened to be available. And I said, hey, could you come right now? And she could. So we did it. And uh, yeah, it was it was a really weird. My swearing in ceremony was really cool, but it, that kind of knocked it down a little notch to not be official at the time of my colleagues. But yeah, I, I would say, I don't know. There was a lot of, pre there was a standing ovation at that swearing in and that was a lot of pressure. I, I don't know about, it was a lot more intimidating I found than anything <laughs> so i like i like really small intimate things though so that's you, you mentioned me. it briefly and uh, i want to take take a moment and just address it if that's okay with you if not then we'll just cut this part of the interview out um you talk about your burnout um after the housing tour that you went on um uh, uh, as we're in covid and everyone's being uh, told that we're all in this together i've got to ask how are you doing now much better. Oh my goodness. That was such, I feel like it was a lifetime ago already and it was just a few months ago, but I had worked myself so ridiculously that I was basically on the verge of physical shutdown. I don't know what happens after burnout, but your body basically stops to it stops functioning in, in some capacities. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping as much as I should have. And, you know, just all those kinds of things you think about that come with anxiety and stress. And it took me a, quite a bit to pull myself out of it and even realize what I was sitting in. Um, so even 
leading up to Christmas and New Year's, it was, oh, how am I going to figure this out? How am I going to, you know, can I handle this? Can I run again? Can I do my counseling? Do I need antidepressants? Should I fit? I'm working on getting an emotional animal support. That's how my brain felt all like the first two months was just how am I going to figure it out? How am I going to handle it in a way that makes sense to the public? Because I am a 27 year old enough woman that everybody doubted from the get go. And that's, it was just like two months of kind (laughs) of riddled with this anxiousness and this stress of how am I going to tell all these people that put this faith into me. And I turned out to just, do exactly what I did the whole time just continue to stay honest and transparent and it was I think shortly before New Year's I was like okay I'm just gonna do it I'm just I need to just tell people what's been happening and I've been experiencing depression anxiety and burnout and I don't need to shy away from that and as long as I can be open and transparent then people will see I'm serious so I just and your had caucus to colleagues were dive in head first and it worked out okay. <laughs> and how were your caucus colleagues during this time? Because take stepping back from a member of parliament, especially from public life, can be daunting because you are already under a microscope. So did your caucus colleagues come and support you and help you and take over some like potential requests from the people of Nunavut? Yeah, for sure. So my caucus has been extremely helpful. It took uh, some pushing and shoving, but that's the other thing with NDP. I always know I can really lean on them. So services and things for members of parliament work for middle-aged white wealthy men, but not so much for anyone else. Um, So even getting the House of Commons to cover trauma-informed counseling that I was accessing before was quite a bit of back and forth. And it was a push from my uh, NDP that finally got that to go through. But even just things like that, I've been working on, um, I'd mentioned I'm getting an uh, emotional uh, support doggo. Um, So we're working on getting her um, to me, that's been a few, quite the month process, um, but NDP has been helping me with that as well. So I, on a personal note, uh, there's just, they always back me and I always have a you know, couple colleagues that we check in all the time and um, Matthew Green and Jug Mead and Leah Gazan and uh, Lindsay Madsen, Laurel Collins, uh, Taylor Backrack. I mean, I probably would end up just naming everyone now that I think of it. So I've heard from basically everyone. Yes. (laughs) Um, My colleagues have been very, very amazing. Um, And it's not just kind of a, Hey, how are you doing? Because I know you've been off for a month. People are checking in uh, constant and, you know, just letting me know that I can reach out if need be. So it's been great. One last question before we wrap up the interview here. Uh, We are in a minority government we see the conservatives, the liberals, and the NDP actually now nominating people for a potential election in 2021 or potentially 2022. We don't have technically have to go to the polls until 2023, but minority governments, and it seems like Aaron O'Toole and Justin Trudeau are playing uh, who's going to blink first and topple the government. 
will we be seeing your name on the ballot in the next general election? Or have you thought that far ahead yet? I'm very much a day by day person. I'm like, I can barely think about next week sometimes. <laughs> Which is true to an extent. I am a planning person. I do like having an idea. Uh, at the time of burnout, I would have said I really have no idea. Now I'm definitely leaning more so towards yes. And, you know, the counseling and that push that I've seen and mentioned from my party has been super encouraging. And to be very honest, I don't know, you know, how many workplaces even get that. Um, so uh, there are some really, really great strides in terms of that. The issues that I will be continuing to face will be from a procedural House of Commons perspective. I can't offer my riding, cons uh, my riding staff a livable wage right now because of the lack of funding that I get from the federal um, government in my budget. I... Not many people know that members of parliament pay for everything except our flights out of pocket. So if I want to travel in my constituency and it's two or three hundred dollars a night for a hotel, um, I, again, don't come from wealth uh, in my background. I don't have the biggest credit <laughs> build up, so I can only travel for X amount of time before my personal funding puts me on hold. And that's how is that fair compared to a bc mp or downtown toronto or wherever else yeah. um so those financial aspects or house of commons items we'll be working on and uh those are my biggest barriers uh, to be honest and uh, really have me banging my head against the wall but that's a house of commons issue so myself and ndp will be working on that and i i only see it uh going up so i will say I like to think so. Perfect. That's the perfect spot <laughs> to end the interview. Mumalak, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Um, for my listeners, I will link uh, her uh, Twitter, her Facebook page, and her website on uh, the show notes. So check it out. Follow her. She's an amazing uh, MP, and she stands up for her constituents. And that's what you always look for in an MP. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you once again for listening to the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you love this episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. All the links to our social media accounts are in the show notes or visit www.crossborderinterviews.ca. The Cross Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated. Be sure to tune in for our next episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. Once again, thank you. Bye -bye.